0: Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. We meet you today on the 130th anniversary of uh, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru's birth. Uh, we are going to be Talking about uh, Pandit Nehru's foreign policy legacy in the Indian context uh, as a designated child of the office on the occasion of Children's Day, uh, <laughs> let me welcome uh, both Manoj and Sankal. Um, so, let's just start uh, with a bit of a provocative question, guys. So, one thing that I've seen very often on a certain part of Twitter is that if uh, Sardar Patel had been India's first prime minister, then our foreign policy would have followed such a different trajectory that we'd definitely be a superpower now. Uh, so, let's
2: open the the floor to your opinion Sankal see first thing we have to recognize is this Patel and Nehru were never against each other they worked hand in hand they were both Gandhiji's disciples they were working together since 1920s so that concept itself needs to be challenged first second Patel, had he become Prime Minister, would be 72, and he was facing health issues. Hmm. So I'm not sure whether he would have been able to carry on the burden of the Office of Prime Ministership and also carrying the entire nation together for as long as Nehru would have done. Hmm. Because you see, in 1948, Patel had a severe heart attack. Hmm. So if you have a Prime Minister who is you know in weak health... I am not sure how it would have benefited the country although he was a able supporter of Nehru he made him he made sure that you know organization remains with Nehru hmm. but I think it was Nehru all along and hmm. it was known since 1940s right i mean yeah. when patel was there gandhiji himself was there other stalwart leaders like rajendra prasad rajgopalachari everybody was there and nehru was a designated successor
0: hmm. so um if we can like kind of tease out the especially the foreign policy angle of it right so um, the word Nehruvian is used almost in a pejorative sense today yeah. uh, to kind of declare that people are uh, like wool-headed dreamers yeah. uh, with very idealistic expectations in the international space. Um, did Nehru's own foreign policy, his own behavior support this idea? Do you guys see him as Nehruvian?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that sort of what you've just said connects to this earlier question also about Patel and Nehru. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not an in, a historian and I have very limited understanding of the internal dynamics of the Congress at that point of time. But from what I understand is that, yes, there were, of course, differences between Nehru and Patel on certain policy issues, which is but natural. I mean, to assume that any uh, government or party will have unanimity throughout is actually dangerous if that happens. Hmm. Um, So there were differences in their opinions, specifically on, say, China, which is something that I researched, there were differences on their opinions. This ties into this other notion. That's the myth that's been carried on, right? that Nehru was this woolly-headed idealist who saw third worldism and non-alignment and, you know, India being this moral force and didn't really concern himself with hard power and those sorts of things. To me, uh, that's a complete misnomer. There were obviously certain limitations. There were obviously certain priorities that he had. Um, He saw India as a major power in the world scene and he also saw material capabilities as important for that. Could you gain the kind of material capabilities in that short span of time, given how he saw India as a major power? Of course not. And that was one of the problem, sort of misfits between his aspiration and the material strength that India had. Hmm. I think India under Nehru internationally punched way above its weight.
0: Hmm.
1: We were nowhere where we should have been and we punched way above our weight on because of multiple issues. And part of that was because of the certain moral force of this movement of decolonization and this example that the Gandhian ideal of, you know, uh, non-violence and so on and so forth set forth. Hmm. Despite that, obviously, our partition
0: and our independence struggle was very violent in many ways. So um, let, me, let me just pause you there for one second, Manod. So um, if I can sta- restate this, essentially, what you're saying is that Nehru's third worldism, though it's seen often as an example of him not being connected to global realities, might actually be a great example of how, well, he understood the global discourse around colonialism. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. I think it was very, uh, uh, I mean, uh, the word opportunistic seemed pejorative, but it, there was a certain realism to what he was doing. Hmm. Um, did your ideology of India being a moral force and so on and so forth, and you know, non-violence and all that, fit into that realist paradigm very well, serve your interests well? Of course it did. And that's why that ideology was leveraged. Uh, when push came to shove, um, It's not like, for example, when we went to the the UN Security Council... Uh, when we went to the UN in terms of in 1948 with regard to Pakistan and Kashmir, it was not an ideologically dil- dil- taken decision because we suddenly felt that oh, you know, this this is a dispute and the UN must decide and you know, or we decided on plebiscite as one option because we suddenly felt this way. Plebiscite was discussed much before in many other contexts uh, as far, uh, in regards to different states which were contested. And I think Srinath Raghavan speaks quite extensively about this in his podcast. So If anybody is interested in the details on that, you can. listen to him. But the broad idea is this. You saw very realistically what your interests were. Were there failures in Nehru in foreign policy? Of course. Hmm. I mean, it would be foolish to say that there were no failures. But given the material strength that India had, India during Nehru's years punched way above its weight. We made a lot of mistakes. But Predominantly, there's one overarching structure that Nehru left left behind for us, which even today dominates our foreign policy. I mean, you can call it very differently by different names. Um, You know, it was non-alignment 2.0 at one point in time. Today, it's multi-alignment, hmm. not non-alignment. But that as a framework of India being this autonomous power center in the world, a regional power with global reach,
0: um, which is not necessarily aligned to any power block, hmm.
1: continues to persist even today.
0: That's a very good way of putting this. Regional power with global reach. Idea. And I'll probably come back to this later in our conversation. But I think, Sankalp, you had you had a point to make.
2: Yeah, so, see, this idea of idealism also needs to be broken down. Because what happens is, what Nehru was doing, uh, recently TV Paul has termed it as the soft balancing, basically. Yeah. If we look at in the IR sense. And in a way, you could play off one superpower against the other. Second point was that, Regarding India's connections with third-worldism and not being connected with the global realities, let me tell you a fascinating story in the 60s. When non-alignment was at its peak, African countries were becoming independent. Hmm. And many African leaders were, especially Kwame nkrumah of Ghana, wanted to push for more radical stance on decolonization. Hmm. Whereas Nehru had seen what happens with the... Problems between superpowers and Nehru wanted to go for disarmament. Hmm. And that was the first major rupture in the history of non aligned movement, which is not generally talked about, but which clearly demonstrated that Nehru was more important about superpower politics, more interested in that, and also connected to that.
0: That's, that's a very interesting point. And uh, just, I think the disarmament angle of, of India's early foreign policy is not really gone into considering that we were operating in a very, very tense security environment. The Cold War is literally unfolding in front of us.
2: But interestingly, although pushing for disarmament, hmm. India. Also made sure that it had adequate infrastructure for developing nuclear power. Hmm. So when we exactly. thank other prime ministers for testing weapons, hmm. the foundation for that was laid by Nehru. Hmm. Again, that sort of underscores the realism of his
1: approach. Absolutely. Right, yeah, it was I mean, not woolly-headed to the extent that you know we are going to lay down our arms and put up these white flags and the world is going to follow us and we are all going to live happily. Floating doves
2: in the sky. Imagine Um, in the garb of atoms for peace, we secure nuclear technology, nuclear material for us. I mean, that is like...
1: I think there's a lot of uh, historical judgment, which is sort of uh, unfair. And a lot of that actually now goes back to uh, a couple of things. And they go back to things regarding China and Kashmir. Hmm. Um, Because those are sort of those big legacy issues which are left behind, for which obviously blame uh, is put on Nehru's doorstep. And to some degree, it's it's legitimate. Justified, yeah. It's justified that there, there is a share of blame that he should carry with himself. Um, on China specifically, yes, uh, there were clear mistakes that were made. There were clear political missteps. Uh, there was a clear misunderstanding of the mood of the Communist Party. There were clear policy missteps in terms of how the forward policy was uh, undertaken. So there were certain missteps that were made, yes. Uh, this, but this idea that you know, uh, Nehru decided that if we acquiesce to China and give the PRC this UN seat and this and that and do all of this for them, they will be nice to us. And uh, to me, that's a little bit overblown. Um, if you look at his first speech, uh, sort of just as India is becoming independent, you hold this Asian relations conference and Nehru makes speech over there. The speech is available online for people to go and read. And if you what you read in it is... A person who is looking at the world realistically and saying, look, Asia has these ancient civilizations. As decolonization is happening, these civilizations are going to come into their own. And therefore, they will have they will essentially become their own power centers. We will have differences because we have differences. Yes, yet there are certain common grounds that we can work on. To me, that's not woolly headed idealism. That's a very rooted in realism, understanding of the need
2: for cooperation despite differences. And
1: I think mm. that makes sense. Absolutely.
2: I just want to come in here regarding, you know, uh, again, breaking down idealism. There are again two examples from Nehruvian era where we can see Nehru was not averse to the use of force. First was in 1950 when there was a crisis with East Pakistan. I mean, with Pakistan, Nehru had threatened the use of force. Mm. And that was a first instance of coercive diplomacy. Again, Srinath Raghavan yeah. has explained it beautifully in his book. But we imagine that 2001, 2002 was the first instance of coercive diplomacy. That was not. It was 1950. Second, Goa. I mean, despite despite saying to Kennedy that we will not use force, you are essentially using force. Like I don't know, six months down the line. I mean, Hmm. and you realize that, you know, entire NATO can come back to sort of, you know, haunt you. Because Portugal was a NATO member then.
0: It seems like Nero's policy was to speak gently but carry a big stick. Exactly. And if you, you
1: this, it's also seen in the context of what we did with Bhutan and Nepal, hmm. where we ended up signing these peace and friendship treaties, uh, which shaped our relationship with these countries going forward. But this was essentially looking at securing our periphery. Um, This was not some, again, woolly-headed idealism. This was about securing your periphery. And today, yes, those frameworks are under pressure with both of these countries. Mm. And that's because of an increasingly assertive China in this region and the option that it provides to these countries. And also changes that have taken place uh, in terms of the relationship between the two countries. But those were the treaties that laid the foundations for a secure, far more stable periphery for India. Mm. Um, And many, like Sankalp will tell you, many have sort of termed The signing of those treaties as sort of an imperial perspective on Indian foreign policy, where Nehru sort of inherits this uh, vision of imperial Raj, sort of this British India, which is imperial, which views its periphery as its sphere of influence. And therefore, he also pursues very similar policies. And
0: that doesn't sound like an idealistic notion to me, right? That's something I find quite surprising. And this while while you guys were talking earlier, also, just the way that Indian elites after independence approached the whole project, hmm. uh didn't seem to think at all that we are we were recently colonized country. They're very much like, hey, look, we we started in Oxford, and we are going to yeah. go out to the United Nations. We are going to make these assertive speeches, and if that and that actually ended up helping our foreign policy. Yeah,
2: maybe that was the only time when India realistically felt that it is a great power and it was behaving like one, although it didn't have material capacities. Because the way, I mean, imagine you assuring Nepal or Bhutan or Sikkim of security. Now, who does that? Exactly. I mean, you need to have material capacity, but you also need that imagination of sorts. I can't help but feel that even though
0: India's material capacity is kind of improved uh, because of the way that our foreign policy seems to kind of meander now Hmm. that all the blame for foreign policy not paying off very well ends up falling on Nehru and that's kind of unfair. I mean, it's unfair. Yes, I agree. But I also
1: sort of temper that by saying that, look, the fact that there was this mismatch between how we were acting in our aspiration and our material capacity Hmm. also... Created problems in terms of achieving certain objectives, and the China case is a perfect example for that. The 62 war
0: hmm.
1: is because we were acting, we were behaving. Like I said, we were punching far above our weight, and that's great. But until you come to a point where you start to buy your own, you know, so you start to drink your own kool aid, and you start to believe your own nonsense, and you end up in a position where you there's a big gap, and you sort of miss miss that gap. Hmm. In that sense, I think over the years, subsequently after Nehru, and particularly today, we are at a point where I think there is a little bit of a better realization of uh, where we stand materially. And why do I say that is because, um, I mean, if you look at what's happening between the US and China today, and if you look at how India is trying to navigate that particular sort of uh, shift that's happening geopolitically, if I'm more cautious, uh, yes, we are, it's, it may seem like you're meandering, but given your asymmetry of power with some of these countries, and you might have very uh, high-minded objectives and you might want to project yourself as a great power, but given the limitations of your material capacity, you are going to be far more cautious in your actions. So, for example, in the Maldives, mm-hmm. um, while a year or so ago we might have there might be might have been a consideration that India needs to intervene militarily, it was good that we didn't in hindsight. It was good that we didn't. So, I think there is somewhat a better sense of balance between aspiration and capacity. I don't think in that era that balance was really there. Uh, because I think we were aspiring for far more than what we had in terms of the capacity that we had, which was not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's just that when, once, once uh, you start to lose a sense of what that gap is like, you can end up making far more devastating mistakes than you would otherwise. I want to come in here
2: again, but in a different context. Uh, I agree with what Manoj is saying. Uh, While speaking of Nehru's foreign policy, we are only talking about his approach to world affairs. Hmm. We should also consider what he did with the foreign ministry. Hmm. Because Hmm. he was a foreign minister for 17 years. He used to held this uh, state of the nation sort of address every year. He would present his report card of sorts to the nation, Hmm. which was a good practice, which was stopped somehow. Uh, Institutionalizing the entire ministry. It was in Nehru's time that you had historical division in the MEA. Where you had people like S. Gopal who would sort of, you know, work on historical aspects of foreign policy. But something that we don't do today. Even now, I mean, I I don't know when it was wound up. During, I think, Indira Gandhi's time. Mm. But uh, so… Regarding China case, yeah. S. Gopal was sent to India House in Britain and you know they accessed British archives and they built proper case for Indian claims in certain parts of the boundary. Yeah. Although Chinese didn't yeah. regard mm-hmm. that as valid, mm-hmm. but uh, you had that sort of imagination as well. He mm-hmm. would personally sort of interview people who would come for foreign service, who were selected, You know, ambassadors were briefed personally by the Prime Minister. These might seem small things now, but when India is shaping its own approach to the world, I think they are quite significant. I think in that
1: earlier, another thing that Nehru did, which is very, very good from this particular point of view of building India's foreign policy capacity was that uh, he used to write letters and he used to write copiously to leaders at state leaders in India to inform them what India is doing at the international stage, why we are doing so, and to essentially make sure that they are informed and empowered uh, as things go forward. Mm-hmm. And I think this is fundamental, uh, again, because a lot of, and this is, I mean, it ties into this modern day concept where, you know, we in the office, we keep talking about this thing about Indian states needing to have certain kind of foreign policy approaches. Um, Pranay talks about this quite a bit. And you won't, have that until you have capacity. Um, and this practice that Nehru had, where he would inform states and he was trying to take states together, was extremely important uh, as a legacy. And, um, I can see why, uh, as things have become far more complex, as things have become far, as India sort of role internationally increases far more, it becomes difficult to continue that for your prime minister to be sitting and writing letters copiously. Also, Nehru was a scholar in, Man, you know, so it was not like he was used to writing. He was uh, used to writing that he was much, used to writing poetry, that much yeah. That so I think uh, it helps if you're that sort of an intellectual who does some of these things. Hmm. Um, but even then, just the policy of keeping state leaderships, uh, state legislatures informed. I think that's a good practice. And I think that if there is some way where we can sort of continue to institutionalize some of these things, it would be really useful because states would be far better informed. Mm. Foreign policy is not just about what the MEA does uh, anymore. Or what or even PMO now. Yeah, even PMO, of <laughs> course. It's like expecting Brussels to
0: conduct Europe's foreign policy, right? Exactly.
1: It's uh, You need far more actors and you need far more inputs. And you need states to play a role in terms of if it's simply as attracting investment, states should know how you go about some of these things, what are the positions, what are the risk factors and so on and so forth. Hmm. And in that, if you're engaging with the center, the center is willfully engaging with you on some of these issues. It really helps. Hmm. It really helps. So I think Nehru was great in some of those areas where he sought actually to build India's overall diplomatic capacity. And again, that stems from his belief that India was a great power and Hmm. was to play a great power role internationally. In many ways, we are still not where he probably envisioned India's role internationally to be. Um, It's expanded greatly,
0: uh, but we're still not there. And that has a lot to do with material capacity. So y'all are making me miss my cha-cha at this point. Uh, But uh, Okay, so if if I can just quickly summarize um, what I've learned from this whole conversation, right? So... um, Nehru was actually a lot more of an imperialist than we'd like to believe he is. Yeah. Uh, his push K- even for third world zonian imperialist zonian
2: you know, imperialist, imperialist. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: His push, his so-called idealist look at the third world and decolonization was actually based on very a very real and critical understanding of the global security environment. Uh, he did some absolutely great work in terms of institutionalizing Indian foreign policy and attempting to decenter it. Yeah. But the one area where he doesn't seem to have done that great was actually dropping that kind of rose-tinted view yeah. of the Raj as the dominant power of South Asia and so on and so forth. Um, and I think a really, really great example of this was 62. Now, Manoj, you mentioned it earlier. I yeah. kind of want to get a little deeper into the events that led to 62 planning out the way it did. Hmm. And considering that Nehru was not a not the kind of man who was shy of apologizing. Yeah. He did admit that he, he'd, he'd made some mistakes. Yeah. Did he reorient India's foreign policy in any way? But what What is your... Um, there seem to be two broad errors practically of, of Nehruvian policy, right? So you have the early optimistic, imperialist uh, uh, phase, if if I'm... I'm I'm probably oversimplifying this, of course. And the later, more what have I done with China sort of phase.
1: Yeah, I think uh, as the sort of 50s rolled on and as his conversations with Joe and Lai started to go south, uh, there was a greater realization in even Nehru that look, this is a serious challenge that we have. Hmm. I mean, that's the difference where with Nehru and Patel that people draw up, right? Patel was much earlier to realize that this is going to be a difficult, in 1950 itself, once uh, the PLA had moved into Tibet. Patel had realized that, look, this is going to pose a serious challenge to us. But as the sort of engagement went on, uh, Nehru sort of was also quite quick to realize that, look, this is going to be a serious challenge for us. Did he believe that conflict was inevitable? Of course not. Um, he saw multiple pathways in which conflict could be avoided. Um Yet, did he believe that he needed to uh, project strength? He needed to secure our frontiers and he needed to do some of those things. Of course, yes. That's where the forward policy came into being. Hmm. Where my, and we've done a podcast on this also. So where my sort of, where I'd sort of draw the line in terms of what uh, went wrong in 1962, apart from militarily, how we, you know, didn't necessarily plan effectively and how uh, people weren't ready, uh, what went wrong broadly was the fact that we misread the mood that was developing in China. We misread the PRC's approach. We misread the, we misread the PRC's understanding of India and the internal dynamics going on in the PRC. And I think that was where our fundamental mistake lie. I think that sort of, uh, once the war ended and the defeat that India suffered at that, in that conflict, sort of cast a heavy shadow on Nehru's own psyche and he died very soon afterwards. Hmm. Um, and I think this sense that he'd been betrayed, Uh, because he'd invested so much. I think that's where, again, this notion of romanticism also comes in. The fact that, you know, he felt betrayed, not realizing that, you know, the global system is anarchic and there is real politic and all of that. I think he genuinely felt that you would not see conflict uh, between these two countries. Um, Yet, I don't think he was blind to the fact that there couldn't be. Because as the 50s had rolled on and as things sawed, there was a realization that this is a possibility. Hmm. The failure to prepare for that possibility
2: is where I think the blame rests with him. And speaking of corrective steps, I think as the war was going on, India reached out to the United States. Yeah. And asking to sort of, you know, send their military personnel and as much assistance as they could. I mean, I think that was the end of in non-alignment when, you know, you have these American soldiers coming into India. Yeah. Mm. But uh, he was not shy of asking that help. I mean, Yeah, he was not shy
1: of asking for help. He wrote to uh, Kennedy at that point in time. And he also... Uh, spoke to, he was even in. Con, con, he was even exchanging uh, letters with uh, the Chinese leadership. And there was a proposal, uh, because the war went on, it was a month-long conflict. I think for the first week or so, there was fighting, and then there was a lull in the fighting, and then there was again fighting later on in November, uh, until the 20th, 21st, when the Chinese eventually declared a unilateral ceasefire. I think, uh, even at that point of time, there was a proposal from Zhou Enlai, from what I remember, to uh, meet somewhere away from the media glare, and to talk about things because even he didn't, uh, you know, there were elements in the Chinese leadership which saw this conflict as problematic. And uh, it just didn't happen. Nehru, from what I remember during even we were talking about this at the time, when Nehru was given that proposal as a written document, uh, you know, written on a page by his interlocutor, um, he essentially tore it up and he said, no, I don't want to even listen to this. So that's how sort of uh, dismayed he was, which you can look at and say as, you know, a lack of political, a certain political naivety because you would assume that states would be serving their interests. But you can also see that as, you know, something where you've invested in and you realize that it hasn't worked out for you and you've made a
0: mistake. Sunk cost.
2: Yeah, sunk cost. Interestingly, what India did in the 50s helped India after 62 war because many of these countries came out openly in favor of India.
0: Yeah. mm -hmm. Non-aligned
2: countries. Although many didn't, but many also came out. There was something called Colombo proposals. Now, Colombo proposals came out because of a conference that Nehru had organized in 49 hmm. for Indonesia's independence. And, you know, I mean, Colombo powers were essentially Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and Indonesia were there. So that is something that we tend to underestimate that, you know, because we lost in China, against China, entire foreign policy was a failure. That's not how it works out. Yeah.
0: Okay, sure. So this, this really complicates our understanding of Nehru and I think generally of 20th century international relations. Um,
2: thank you guys so much for joining me. But before we wrap up, final comments, Sankal? So interestingly, in India, we have this vilification of Nehru and also that non-alignment was a useless tool of foreign policy. India lost because of non-alignment. All of that nonsense goes on. But interestingly, Henry Kissinger came out in 2014 in full support of India's non-alignment. He wrote that for a newly independent country, that was probably the sanest way to sort of, you know, structure its foreign policy, and it served India well. So, I mean.
1: So, I'm going to add on to that and I'm going to make a personal comment about that. Uh, In 2002, 2003, when I was doing my masters, I'd done a paper on. whether uh, non-alignment was ideologically driven or whether it was based on national interests and i didn't get a great grade on that because i argued Manu's that it not was not getting a great grade <laughs> because i had argued that it
0: was national interest driven so professor here you go <laughs> it was national interest <laughs> driven well um, well, uh, I, I the the one thing that i think really stayed with me through this conversation was the image of nehru tearing up Chuan lai's message yeah. uh, i think it's a it's a appropriately complex note Uh, to end an episode about uh, Complex Man Uh, so thank you both for joining me and thank you so much for listening to All Things Policy if you
1: liked our show don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network you can tune into them on the IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts you can also follow IVM on social media the handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter Facebook and Instagram and hey If you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.